This episode is dedicated to Bookum Dano for becoming our newest Southpaw supporter and helping to make this project possible. Simping for symbionts here. It's Southpaw Deep Space Nine. Welcome, everybody, to another installment of the show. This is the show where I, Angel Marti, take our friend uh, Southpaw Sam and guide him into Star Trek fandom by watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode by episode and uh, discussing the different uh, political and cultural messages, both uh, implicit and explicit, through a lefty uh, lens. Sam, how are you doing this week? Uh, you know, we're in this like holding pattern of permanent hell in the U.S. So, I guess the usual. I I, I think uh, I think just from now on, my uh, uh, response to anybody asking me how I am is I'm just gonna like just say you know living in America, but like <laughs> not like the not the James Brown way, just uh, just literally living in America. But let us leave our hellish reality for the wonderful utopian vision of the future in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Season 1, Episode 7, we're going with Dax. This is going to be a lovely little character deep dive into, uh, surprisingly, it's about O'Brien. No, it's about uh, definitely about uh, Dax, Jadzia Dax, and her past lives. So as we open, uh, my remark about O'Brien was wishful because we open with O'Brien's gone! The station log that Captain Cisco gives uh, says that our precious, precious potato baby uh, has went gone back to Earth t- with his wife to celebrate his mother-in-law's 100th birthday. So because he's gone, we know that some kind of problem is going to happen. It's just a good <laughs> it's just a good way to promise that shit really is going to hit the fan when you say that O'Brien's gone this week. And of course, uh, what what that problem ends up being is that. Dr. Horny has complete free reign to uh, be drinking coffee next to Jadzia and say instant lawsuit bait like, I could think of a better way to keep you up all night. This scene, which is just like Jadzia is reading something on a pad and, and Bashir is just throwing lines like that at her, has always made me wonder like, okay, how much of it is Jadzia legitimately being like too wrapped up in her work to like notice how awful like how like unprofessional Bashir is being and how much of it is her strategically from a lifetime of dealing with awful horny men uh uh just sort of not like not feeding the trolls like just sort of gracefully ignoring it but finally in this conversation there is a moment where uh Jadzia shoots a look at Bashir and it makes Bashir just wilt. So let's hope that maybe uh, this is the time that, uh, that Bashir finally gets the message because this is probably the most uh, explicit that we've seen Jadzia be about her lack of uh, interest. 
So the cold open often tends to be the adventures of Dr. Creepy, as I sometimes call him. And this time, he straight up propositioned Jazia, to your point. But Jazia is his co-worker. In self-defense and workplace harassment, you could even define this as lateral violence. To which point, my wife said, as a woman, this is even more inappropriate because he's a doctor, which I didn't think about. Because there's a long, sordid history of male doctors sexually assaulting female patients. Oh, yeah. It's real common. And there was a recent investigation about how easily doctors get their medical licenses back quicker than almost all other offenses because of how misogynist the U.S. is, and in particular, its medical system, which is also known for being extremely racist as well. So this scene might be playful and funny to some, but can be read completely different to others. Yeah, and yeah, somehow, inconceivably, uh, there is somebody else in this scene who is even being creepier towards Jadzia as the camera pans back and we see that there are two men uh, spying on the both of them from behind some kind of, gr- of uh, grating. And one of the uh, other men just looks at Jadzia, looks back at the first man and just simply confirms, Dax. So after Jadzia finally decides to uh, stop having fun shutting down Bashir, uh, she decides to turn in for the night. And when she uh, leaves for her own quarters, these two men follow after her. And so this is probably when, uh, probably one of the more irredeemable things that uh, Bashir <laughs> does, even though the plot kind of redeems the actions, is because Bashir offers to walk her back to her quarters. And then Jadzia says that's not necessary. But when she leaves and be- and starts to be pursued by these two mystery men, we see Julian say to himself, not necessary, but also not forbidden either, or something to that effect. And then... <laughs> no means maybe? It, it's... It, like, I, I don't even remember this episode. Like, it was just like, I, I, I have to say, I... You know, maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I guess to me, it's just later season Bashir just takes so much precedence in my mind, you know, and and just the wholesome things that he's shown doing later that just like season one, Dr. Horny just really (laughs) like is he's the weird comic relief right right now. It, yeah, it's uh, he's kind of written like Sam from Cheers. I I also wanted to raise another point that that uh, is something that um. I find is a consistent flaw in uh, in all Star Trek shows, like even the current Trek ones, is that, I mean, I know for the sake of writing a show where you can only have so many main characters, like if you're going to deal with like ship's doctor or station's doctor, you're mostly going to deal with like the the one doctor, you know, as a character. And, and, and we, and usually Characters like, you know, Bashir on Deep Space Nine and Crusher on on the Enterprise are usually referred to as the chief medical officer with the implication that there are other doctors on the ship or the station or whatever. But we rarely see the crew interact with these other doctors. And it just seems like if if there's too much of a personal relationship that forms between one officer and one doctor, it would make sense that they would probably see these other doctors more so that way there would still be that professional boundary but we really don't 
see that. It's like it's like Picard is always seen consulting with Crusher, even though there's this constant, you know, romantic, you know, will they won't they tension between them. And then here we really see Bashir as the only consulting physician on the station so far, which makes makes his behavior even more egregious. Yeah, it's almost like if a ship's chaplain was Dr. Horny, right? Because this is the person that everybody goes to at their most vulnerable. Yeah, the, well, the, the problem is you can't just be like, oh, I'm atheist when it comes to your medical care. So at least yeah. being a chaplain <laughs> allows like some escape valve there. But speaking of escape, so Jadzia is then uh, attacked by these mystery assailants. And because Bashir decided to be creepy, it ends up being <laughs> good because he catches them in the act and is able to uh, report uh, the uh, kidnapping to his uh, officer to to Cisco and the other team. But I I want to note that like so what happens is he uh, Doctor Horny sees you know the uh, two aliens attack Jadzia, but because he's like exhausted all the testosterone in his body that day from a rigid schedule of just ogling, I assume like he throws one punch and he's like instantly out like. At, Oh, well, actually, no, he he throws a punch and then one of the assailants hoods falls off. It reveals that one of them is a woman and his brain clearly short circuits having to pick between his fight or fuck instincts. And then he gets punched out and disabled. And uh, and then and then the aliens are able to uh, uh, abscond with Chad Zia. Uh, it's it's some interesting fight choreography, Sam. Like, how did you feel looking at it? <laughs> well, if. Dr. Horny, let's say, has a patient who happens to be a woman and she has to, like, take off her shirt or whatever because it's a doctor. <laughs> you know, it's just like, dude, from everything you've shown, this guy cannot be professional, right? He's going to be gross about it. So it gave me some other thoughts. Yeah, if we if we ever had to show that on screen, it's like his eyes would literally like bulge out of his skull like a Tex Avery wolf. Like he would he would make an awuga noise. Actually, that's a good segue to the next comment I had because I really want to talk about this fight scene. To me, this is classic Trek foo with the sound effects, stilted movement blocking, and single camera shots and cartoon logic. So Bashir got hit with a left punch, I believe. And instead of now hitting him with the right or cocking back and hitting him with the left punch again, the attacker, or should I say vigilante defender of Jazia, <laughs> leaves that left arm extended and then comes back with a back fist. Now, that seems like a minor detail, but it's consistent with other Trek fight scenes I've seen because the logic isn't about the sequence of moves, but making the person getting hit react in one direction, then the other direction like a speed bag. So if you double axe handle someone down where they are bent over, you have to follow up with a hammer swing blast to their face that swings them upward. That is Trek Fu logic. It makes for more comical visuals, which you most often see in cartoons, Star Trek, and Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. Well, you know where else you see that though, Sam, is is in pro wrestling. Yes. You know, because you have to play it for the people in the cheap seats. That's like, I, I haven't dropped this before on this show, but, you know, I did have a very, 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 very brief career as an independent pro wrestler. And when I was training, 
And when I was training, they would always say, okay, if you're going to hit somebody in the gut and they double over, the next thing you want to do is hit them in the head. So that way they have to sell upwards. So that way, you know, the audience doesn't just see somebody like completely bent over the whole time. And so again, this, I think I did bring up before that, you know, Shatner Fu was definitely influenced by the fact that he trained with judo, that uh, trained with judo Jean LaBelle. So maybe that's just that continual uh, legacy bleeding into uh, 90s track. Another trivia point. I trained with judo Jean for years as well. Oh, crap. That uh, <laughs> Uncle Jean, we used to call him. Ah, it's uncle because he would make you tap uncle. That was where it was. <laughs> but you brought in some great context because this type of fighting is so consistent in Star Trek. It doesn't seem like lazy choreography or accidental, but canon, except now in the movies. And I'm sure in the newer series is probably now all gone the way of John Wick. Oh, yeah. But up to a certain point, it seemed very intentional that the fight scenes were like this. No, yeah. If you watch, if you watch uh, Discovery, there's some, especially in like the first couple of seasons where uh, uh, Michelle Yeoh is a recurring character. Like there's some, there's, I mean, the, it's great martial arts choreography, but it's very, very different. Uh, you see, but you can see that everywhere now, right? Whereas this type of Trek foo, you used to only be able to see it in pro wrestling or Star Trek. Right. Like it wouldn't make sense to do this in a real fight, but it's like within the like the 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 just existing rules that everybody is sort of like subconsciously absorbed. It makes sense in wrestling and Trek. A great example would be in Star Trek, somebody bear hugs you. So then you elbow them in the stomach, they double over. And then that arm you use to elbow, now you just swing it up yep. in a back fist. And then you hit them in the face and then they swing upwards, right? That's a very Trek food kind of thing as well. Oh, yeah. So we, uh, the, <laughs> I like how you, de- I like how you call the aliens, the vigilante defenders of Jazzia. It's like, like, what if these aliens are the horny police and they're here to rescue a victim from, from Bashir. But, uh, so we hit the main titles and then after we come back from the, uh, from the, from the titles, Bashir finally wakes up from the afterglow of having had actual physical contact with a woman. <laughs> As far as we've seen, right, in the series so far, that might have been the first time we've seen that. Like, he finally actually touched a woman, and so he had to, like, he had to take a moment to really bask in it. Uh, Kira, finally, uh, from Ops, tracks down where they are and is able to pin them in place with some force fields, and Odo goes in pursuit. Uh, But uh, they're able to also override the force fields and escape onto their ship, all because O'Brien is gone. This is what (laughs) happens when O'Brien is gone, just everything, all sorts of shit hits all sorts of fans. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash before the aliens are able to get away in their ship actually they're the remaining ops officers are able to get the tractor beam back on time and catch the ship but i thought it was really interesting that in this scene cisco is the one who's like doing a lot of the tech tech stuff that like they he's like he's the one who's like pressing buttons on the console to like reroute power and get the tractor beam on time and it stands out to me just because like usually we don't see the commanding officer do all of the little like beat boop things that are that like 
make <laughs> that make the thing that wasn't working and not that wasn't working work again. I took it the same way you did as far as like O'Brien not being there and then Dax not being there. So there's that read. I think it was also intentional to show that Cisco is the type of commander who will roll up their sleeves and do stuff like that. And I also took it a third way. The next generation had a bigger budget. So just from these episodes I've already seen, the number of extras that the next generation, especially like the later seasons, was able to use is far greater than the number of extras that DS9 uses. So I think part of it was also economic where they didn't want to pay, you know, random extra. The next generation had so many extras that they would even give random lines to. And, you know, from being a performer yourself, you give that extra a line. And now all of a sudden, the amount you have to pay them changes. It goes up and they also now will get a little bit of residuals, right? So I think there was also an economic reason for this. Yeah, I mean, and it all, it does also help reinforce the theme that's happening, you know, in universe about like Deep Space Nine's kind of under-equipped. So I guess it all, it, that it's a wonderful confluence of like, you know, real life and in-universe um, universe consequences. So finally, uh, they are able to catch uh, the people kidnapping Jedzia. They're able to reel them back into the station. Uh, Odo apprehends them, and uh, he has a line that says, uh, extremities where I can see them, which is a nice bit of a species-inclusive language. Uh, but then it turns out that the kidnappers are from a planet called Claystron 4, which uh, has a treaty, uh, the, one of the main main uh, uh, uh kidnapper dudes hands what looks like a little key fob to Cisco and says that uh, there is a uh, treaty between Claystron 4 and the Federation that allows for uh, unilateral extradition because Dax has been charged with treason and moita of uh, of uh, of the main of the main kidnapper's father the main kidnapper his 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 uh, name is revealed to be Ilan Tandro. And I wonder if his father, with a name like that, I wonder if his father owned an emerald mine in South Africa. <laughs> Elon Musk definitely sounds like one of those names is like, okay, that's a Star Wars villain, especially with Musk as the last name. But I was just like, how, when it, when he first like sort of entered the national spotlight, I was like, how can anybody take him seriously when he has like such a sci-fi ass name? So Elon Tandro, he wants to uh, uh, take Dax uh, uh, off the station because uh, Dax is a criminal. Uh, he <laughs> And I noted here, oh, okay, unilaterally charging in somewhere with violence because of his own unresolved daddy issues. Uh, this uh, this uh, predicted George W. Uh, George W. Bush's presidency. <laughs> so, uh, by the way, so Elon's, uh, Elon Tandro's father is named Ardalon Tandro, which I've decided is the, uh, is almost as fun to say as Ibudan as far as a uh, silly star trek alien names but uh we'll see if any names uh get added to that list and so we find out that this warrant that ilan tandro has presented is for a murder that took place 30 years ago and it is established that jadzia is only 28 years old so this murder must have been committed uh by the previous host of the dax symbiont curzon who was uh, one of benjamin sisko's uh good friend when he was a young ensign in starfleet Curzon was apparently a Federation-assigned mediator during a civil war that happened 30 years ago on Claystron 4. Uh, there's an interesting little uh, bit of uh, 
backstory here where Cisco says that talking about Curzon, he sort of smiles and says that Curzon had more faults than the usually acceptable Trill. Uh, but despite all that, he was uh, definitely not a murderer. What I liked here is that so there's a con- this conversations between Cisco and Odo. And Cisco goes like, uh, I knew the man. And then Odo responds, but did you know the symbiont inside the man? So what I like is that here, this episode is basically getting the audience to ask the very question that you were asking, asking me back in episode one about like, who's dominant, you know, in a bonded trill relationship? Is it the host or, or is it the symbiont? So, so this, it's almost like the audience, it's almost like the writer's uh, uh, heard you uh, 30 years in the past. <laughs> so Cisco goes to Dax's quarters to try and uh, get some info out of her to like figure out like, you know, what's going on to see if, if there's any way uh, that, uh, that he can help her. But Dax pulls a Tosk and just says she doesn't expect any help. So uh, especially especially because we're not that far out of the Tosk episode, I'm immediately like, okay, this means she's keeping some kind of secret as well. Cisco finds a really great stalling tactic here to keep Tandro from immediately taking uh, Dax off of Deep Space Nine, which is to say that, uh, that it, Deep Space Nine is technically a Bajoran station, and Claystron 4 doesn't have an extradition treaty with Bajor. And so there has to be an official extradition hearing before uh, before they the Claystronians can take Dax off of the station. Uh, Sam, I wanted to ask you because you know you're so like you know you have a lot more like knowledge of just like news type things. Is, did this situation remind you of anything from the real world? I mean, yeah, Snowden, Julian Assange, like whistleblower stuff. Well, you know what? Actually, as we go through the episode, that that uh, that metaphor, uh, that that sort of relationship ends up becoming more apt. So let's keep on going. Now, what happens is they need to find a place to have this uh, this uh, hearing. To, we do have another brush with some unfortunate horniness here, where uh, Odo almost convinces Quark uh, to use the bar by saying that Lieutenant Dax would appreciate it. You know, thank you, Goo Cop, for trying to barter with another person's sexuality. But Quark proves that he has more professional scruples than the fucking ship's doctor, and he refuses that offer, saying that business is business. Uh, so Goo Cop just uh, switches to uh, blackmailing him with potential code violations that would force him to close the bar. Um, and then what really, what really drives this scene home is that right after that. Odo leaves the bar, runs into Cisco, and then it turns out that Cisco he that Odo did all of that without Cisco even asking him to first. Like Odo was uh, like Cisco goes, "We need to find a place for the hearing." And then it turns out Odo just of his own accord uh procured uh these the like forced the concession of space for the sake of this hearing. So in this scene Odo mentions working for Cardassians and now the new provisional Bajoran government. And it gave me flashbacks of Korea. Like, why would you see former Japanese collaborators in charge of Korea? Because the U.S. put them there. So seeing someone who collaborated with previous colonizers in charge again is actual canon to geopolitical history. 
U.S. did this throughout the world. Read the Jakarta method for more receipts. It's a great companion to the series. So with that said, if you're scratching your head about Odo working for the colonizers and now in charge of the colonized, you should be even more confused and upset about U.S. fuckery around the world. This is also something I find lacking in online lefty discourse about Star Trek. And it's this U.S. and Eurocentrism and knowing very little about geopolitical history, especially of the colonized world. That's why they all need to listen to SDS9. It's edutainment. We're the kind of show that like when your teacher doesn't feel like actually teaching on a particular day in the classroom, they'll wheel out the TV and then they'll put an episode of us on. I think that's a good aspiration for this show. But actually, but but you do bring up a great point where, where you know, I think I raised a little bit of like a, a like, why the hell did they let Odo, you know, why, why is everybody so cool with Odo when he worked for the Cardassians? And then I think you're right. There's just this, there's this sort of like, it, it, you know, as much as I am a passionate lefty Star Trek fan and I love projecting my aspirational commie reading onto Star Trek, it is just as important that we recognize that this is sometimes when some of the, the, the America centric and ultimately liberal sort of ideas about history uh, get, re- get uh, put into the text by the writers because chances are you're right that like one of the writers might have subconsciously or consciously known about like how, you know, when uh uh when the u.s you know doing air quotes with my fingers that don't get picked up on a microphone uh liberated uh former japanese colonies after world war ii that they often put some of the same people who were collaborators with the japanese in charge and that they might have just thought well because america did it that's just the way you do it therefore we're going to put you know, one of the people who used to work for the Cardassians in uh, an important position here in the now, quote, liberated, unquote, Deep Space Nine. Or they could be completely unaware of it and just had the same logic as U.S. military planners, right? Yeah, the, the idea of like, oh, we need continuity. Yes, yes. So Cisco, uh, giving further credence to our theory that we've developed in some of the earlier episodes that Odo just basically is given duties to keep him from getting him, getting bored, uh, Cisco <laughs> just orders him to go to Claystron 4 to personally investigate and dig up potential info. Like that, that is like definitely an implicit admission that there just is not as much of a need on Deep Space Nine for constant security uh, uh, surveillance of stuff. But so the hearing begins and Ilan Tandros starts by making his case. Uh, the arbiter asks him why he took 30 years to finally go after Dax. And then apparently it is because the details of this case were in classified military files that were only unsealed recently. And there is also conveniently no statute of limitations for capital crimes like, uh, like murder entries and enclaves drawn for. Cisco. Uh, then uh, when it's his time to make his case, makes the basic appeal that Jadzia is a separate person from Curzon. Curzon is now deceased. We saw him die in in uh, in Emissary. And, but because Jadzia is a different person, the warrant should not stand against her at all and basically puts the burden on Tandro to convince the Arbiter and the entire hearing that they are uh, the same person. And uh, that seems like a victory for our heroes, but Jadzia, who of course is 
definitely sitting on some kind of secret, does not look happy about this, that that Cisco has seemed to have found a way out of this. So I really love this episode because it's about the identity of a host and the symbiont and the legal ramifications. It's literal intersecting identities, a non-binary identity, not just gender, but of persons creating its own unique identity. In philosophy, they call this personal identity. So I like all these questions they are raising. And as we go further, as you explain the plot more, they will be raising even more questions. You could say that Cisco, uh, Cisco's stance is ultimately a, a dialectic stance, that you cannot separate a being from their circumstances, that, that you cannot say that there is some kind of inextricable essence of Dax that can be separated from the conditions of the union with, uh, with Jadzia. So uh, we cut the the hearing takes a recess and we see that Cisco asks Kira and Bashir uh, to search for any evidence to support the theory that they are two different people, legal or medical or otherwise. But we see that uh, Odo reports back from Claystron 4 saying that he has learned that Ardalon Tandro's assassination was very key in the his, in the Civil War because apparently it a uh, it motivated uh, the his side to win their civil war, and thus he's been sort of canonized into a national hero. And uh, everybody that he's talked to has said that Ardalon and Curzon were the closest of friends, making it even uh, weirder that uh, you know that that there's any suspicion that Curzon might have murdered him. I think on TV, Star Trek is the only place you can say comrade without Midwest Americans freaking out. But revolutionary comrades, I mean, you might as well be saying Kami, which makes sense then why Odo says comrade with such disdain, like a fascist, right? Going back to his history. Yeah, I've noticed, actually, I've noticed that in sci-fi where it's like, as long as like, it's a clear military setting, like that's when you, that's when I've noticed that like people will say comrade without any issue. So with what we know about Odo and his past, right? What does he say after this? So he's like barely able to suppress his bloodlust when he says that <laughs> if the charges against Curzon were true, he'd like to hang him up by his ankles myself. But another, another, kernel, another interesting lead here is that apparently the general left a widow. So now uh, Odo is going to go question her and see what info he can get. So the widow, Enina Tondro, who is also Ilan's mother, uh, says that she is certain Curzon is not guilty and that Elon is, quote, obsessed with the death of a father he never knew. We find out that one of the things that uh, is one of the pieces of evidence uh, that uh, is sort of uh, the key of key interest is that there was a secret transmission from the military headquarters uh, for, to the enemy camp. That was identifying the exact route uh, Ardalon, General Ardalon Tandro would have been taking the day that he was kidnapped and then eventually killed. So Ilan believes that Curzon was the one who sent this transmission, as there were only five people who knew that route, including Ardalon and Curzon. And Ilan has established where all of where all the other um, three people uh, were at the time of the transmission, except. Uh, but he is not. But he has not established the whereabouts of Curzon. So, the scene closes on an interesting note, where as Odo is leaving, Inina asks Odo how Curzon is, and then Odo reveals that Curzon is dead, 
And the symbiont is now in a new host who is a young woman. And uh, Anina is quite upset by this. Back at the hearing, uh, Ilan calls forth uh, a, tr- a trill, an expert on trills, who we see is actually the person who, uh, who uh, identified Dax to him from behind the grate at the beginning of the episode. So again, this has sort of been a, uh, a uh, he, he was expecting to be there this whole thing, this whole time. And it's revealed that he was actually, because a Trill is involved in this case, he was sent at the request of the Trill government. So the minister testifies that if uh, one host of a symbiont commits a crime, the next host would certainly recall and be aware of it. And then Ilan contends that if, uh, the, if, if Cisco's idea of Jadzia is a uh, being a different person is accepted that proposes that posits the idea of a what he calls a trill perfect crime um you know that that all one has to do if they commit uh, uh, a crime during one lifetime to escape punishment is to just wait long enough until they can transition into a new host but here when Cisco cross-examines the the Trill Minister, we find we get a definite answer to your question, Sam, which is uh, the hosts of the Trills are are before they're joined with a symbiont are always given a chance to develop their own personalities and live their own life prior to joining. Usually, sometime you know in their in their twenties, and that's because uh, the when a host and a symbiont are joined. Both personalities totally share control or dominance. Neither is suppressed, neither neither is controlling. It is a complete sort of fusion of both at the same time. So, so from to get away from the uh, philosophical and into the science, purely scientific, Bashir takes the stand, and uh, <laughs> the arbiter uh, tries to apply the King Solomon approach and suggests just splitting them uh splitting Dax Jadzia Dax apart taking the Dax symbiont out and sending it separately for trial but uh uh Bashir says that after joining after like a I think like 48 hours after a host joins with a uh symbiont the two can no longer survive separately so Cisco uh questions Bashir and then flatly asks him from a medical standpoint are Curzon Dax and Jadzia the same person and uh, Bashir says flatly as well, certainly not, not just from a flesh and bone standpoint, but also from brainwaves. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room. Not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. When Elon cross-examines Bashir, there's a little bit of an interesting loophole that Elon points out, which is like, how many brains are there in a joint trill? And Bashir says that there are two cerebral nuclei, one in the symbiont and one in the host. And he, and, uh, and Ilan says like, has there been any change in the brain waves of the symbiont itself since joining with Jadzia versus uh, uh, joining with uh, Curzon? And Bashir says, no, 
but that's like saying that's like basically saying like if somebody you know has a kidney transplant from another person does the fact that the kidney itself hasn't changed that the new that the recipient of the organ is now the same person as the donor when it's like we established that the totality of the mixing of the things uh you know that that there's no way to extract again this is dialectic thinking you know it's like it's that there's no there's no way to separate the parts from the totality and no way to separate the totality from the parts so this new combination of things like has to be considered a new thing so whether or not the symbiont is is the same like is completely irrelevant uh but that's just my interpretation uh, as we uh as we keep going uh cisco uh decides to take the stand himself with kira questioning him and cisco talks about how Curzon was a completely different person from the Jadzia that he knows because, you know, Curzon was a, uh, you know, a swaggering, drunken, uh, you know, drinking, uh, a womanizing swashbuckler, and he barely knows Jadzia. And uh, Jadzia, you know, is a very bookish kind of, you know, charming, you know, quieter type person. And uh, ultimately, there's, I, I sort of got... Uh, there, Elon cross examines Cisco himself, and he posits that this metaphor that, like, uh, that you know, the same way that, like, when you there's like this whole salt water metaphor that I kind of like lost track of. I think it's like Elon says that, like, <laughs> it's like Elon says that, like, the way that you mix salt with water, you know, it's like that doesn't remove the the essential quality of the salt or whatever it's a, it is a i guess it's intentionally constructed as a flawed argument because cisco says like haha you know like uh you know that your metaphor proves my point for me because you can boil away the water to uh leave the salt but if you mix the, that salt again into another thing of water that does create a new mixture so that whole argument actually weakened both of their arguments and actually strengthened both of their arguments they actually swap positions a lot in this episode as far as what they were arguing because they both kind of pulled that, aha, that's what I wanted you to say because blah, 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 right? So it worked out where they were kind of both playing off each other and asking these philosophical questions. So we as the viewer can learn more about Dax and the Trill and how they work. So don't think about that salt analogy too much because <laughs> it might not make sense. I, I, I don't know. What, you know, usually I can like, I feel like usually I can remember those kinds of exchanges and synthesize them and repeat them very well. But there was something about how confusing it was. Well, it was because up until this point, Cisco says they're inseparable. And then he says, yeah, but if you boil the water, then you do separate them. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> But then that argues against your previous points. Yeah, that was that was an interesting little little exchange. And then Elon up until that point was saying, you can separate them. But then he says, once you add salt to water, you can't separate them. So it was confusing. Yeah, it's just like, why, why are we why are we stopping this court drama to then do a Bill Nye experiment? <laughs> Is something going to explode now? Yeah, we're about we're about to get to the like, a climactic point where Jadzia Dax herself will take the stand. and but. We get another report from Odo on Claystron 4, where it turns out that there was a series of transmissions from Curzon's office to General Tandro's home while Tandro was away, which means Curzon was talking to... The wife. The wife. The wife. <laughs> uh, which to Odo uh, does turn into a pretty solid motive for murder. But, uh, but when Odo goes back to Anina to re-question her... Um, she uh, admits that uh, that uh, Ardalon Tandro kind of sucked in life. That uh, 
you know, before he was uh, a legend and canonized in death, uh, she kind of was unhappy with him. And but now because of his uh, place in uh, popular folklore as a legend, she has to be the wife of a legend and carry on his legacy and can never remarry. So. And it turns out that, as we guessed, it was a Tosk maneuver. Jadzia was saying nothing because she wanted to protect both the reputation of Anina and Curzon's reputation. Because apparently, because what uh, what uh, Jadzia says is that, like, when one of my kind stumbles, Benjamin, it's a mistake that's there forever. Despite this revelation, Jadzia still won't come forth with uh, a, a straight answer about if Curzon actually killed Tandro or not. It's just, but we know that we know that the truth is a lot more uh, complicated. But she's so Jadzi is finally about to take the stand and testify. But like right before, uh, right before she actually has to answer any questions, Anina Tandro shows up in the hearing herself, and uh, she just reveals everything about the truth. She says that that Ardalan Tan uh, Curzon could not have sent the transmission. Uh, to uh, uh, to the enemies about Ardalan Tandro's whereabouts because at the time the transmission was sent, he was in her bed. And she just, she just like humiliates Ilan and just like spanks his bare back button balls in front of everyone. That's a, I think you should leave reference for anybody who's seen that. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's, it's just like spills. It, it's, it's interesting because this revelation is not even just about like, in this sense, it's not even just about like whether or not uh, somebody was killed or whatever, or who's responsible for a crime, but just like how important, you know, uh, the preserving the legacy of like somebody who's been canonized in a, uh, in a uh, local folklore is, you know, Elon Tandro made some great arguments and raised even better questions, but the questions he raised ended up being moot because of the revelation that we found, right? But going back to Marvel writing, which we've brought up several times, is so often the villain of the week is the one who raises all the interesting questions and the good guys are maintaining the status quo, but feeling conflicted about it. But to something we've brought up before with DS9, there's the plot, which in this case was the murder trial, but there's also the philosophical question, which in this case, was about personal identity and continuity. And when DS9 so far is at its best is when it does both things. And in this case, going to personal identity and continuity was asking, are you really you or are you a copy of you? Or as Zhuangzi would ask, are you Jazia dreaming you are Dax or are you Dax dreaming you are Jazia? Even with transporters, are you being teleported? Or did you die and did a copy of you emerge somewhere else with your memories intact? If you upload yourself onto a server, is that you or is that a copy of you? And this episode is saying Jadzia Dax is a copy, but not the original. So even if the original had committed murder, the copy can't be found at fault. This would also be consistent with uploading yourself. It would only be a copy just as when you, Angel, emailed me a video file from this episode, it was only a copy, right? The original was still on your computer. And even then, that's not the original because you only had a copy of a segment from the show, right? If we ever had a real teleporter, it could only send copies of you somewhere. If you disappeared after being teleported or you died 
while being uploaded onto the internet, that will be called a destructive upload, where you kill or destroy the original so there can be only one copy. Basically, you'd become an NFT version of yourself, but the original would be dead, which they've actually done with some artwork already, destroyed the original to make the NFT copy the only copy, which uh, gets a lot of cringe reactions from people. But this is a long aside, right? Angel, we get a great reveal at the end, which very much reminds me of our quote unquote founding fathers mythology. Yeah. So there's this really nice denouement scene between Jadzia and Anina, where uh, Anina reveals that it was Ardlan Tondro himself sending that info out to the enemies, uh, trying to sell, uh, trying to uh, sell out his side in the war, and that his martyrdom uh, was just a cover up of the fact that his side murdered him for his betrayal. Dun dun dun. Yeah. So they were able to just create a fake uh, folkloric hero out of somebody who was quite the opposite. I thought that was a nice little like cherry on the Sunday of like the different layers of questions of identity, because, because we have, uh, you know, it is interesting how, how we have this uh, parallel uh, sort of B plot deconstruction of the, 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 the legend of our general Ardalan Tondro uh, as where, where the question is like, what is a man versus like you know, about like how he actually behaved towards others in his life versus how he's perceived in death. And then, and then with Jadzia, we're like, okay, you know, what is a person? Is it their memories or is it their, you know, current existence and how like, it's all, it's all the ship of Theseus problem. Like that, that seems to like all of these different explorations of, of like the nature of identity in this episode, uh, uh, sort of go back to the ship of Theseus problem, which I, again, like I said earlier, I think ultimately is solved by the dialectical approach of saying that like, you know, uh, everything that is a new combination of circumstance and response to circumstance, you know, is itself its own unique thing. And it, you know, you can't, you can't, it's useless to try and argue like if having like a certain, uh, uh, combination of of like old and new counts as either the old or the new. Yeah, to your point, is still cohesive to the main plot because it's still asking the question: Is the image of the person the same as the person? Is the copy the same as the original? And the answer is no. These are different things, right? And so that's what this whole episode is about. Yeah, and so at the end, we see Anina. Wishing Jadzia to have to live and have a long life, but uh, ultimately she does not say whether or not she should prosper. So that makes me a little confused and uncomfortable. But I'm assuming Anina says she should. So that's how we end the show. Yeah, and just to clarify for listeners, the thing you brought up of Ship of Theseus was a thought experiment by Plutarch. It's a thought experiment that's existed prior to him. Even uh, like I said, Zhuangzi. Angel, you're better at these pronunciations than me. How do I say? Zhuangzi. <laughs> oh, I see the problem. You got to add some base to it. That's the key. <laughs> Give me that base again. Zhuangzi. And then Plutarch, Heraclitus. But it's this idea of like with the ship of Theseus, if you replaced every part of the ship of Theseus over time until every part is new, is it still the same? Which sometimes makes me think about classic cars where they fix it up, but then every part gets changed. Then you're like, How's it the authentic classic car? But anyway, 
the only reason you think it's the same is because it looks the same and there's some continuity, but it's not the same, right? That is the ship of Theseus thought experiment by Plutarch, which you can look up on the Stanford Encyclopedia because this show is edutainment. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, now, now we will see in the response to this episode who has the more unforgiving, harsh uh, recrimination when correcting uh, errors, uh, Star Trek nerds or philosophy nerds? Stay tuned to see uh, uh, who wins that battle. But we've proven we know much. We know a lot of things. Yes. <laughs> I'm surprised we both knew that whole analogy. Everything that has no practical use just stays like a little barnacle on the hull of my cerebrum. Just like the Borg just absorbing everything around you. Oh, yeah. So, well, speaking of things that have combinations of the familiar but are uh, still unique in their essence, uh, if you like this show, please make sure to check out all the other shows on the Southpaw Network. Uh, we've got Fight Study, we've got uh, Working Stiff Radio, we've got uh, Pride Never Die, and we've got other things in, you know, coming down the chute. Uh, definitely support us on Patreon if you go to www.patreon.com slash southpawpod. Uh, you can just kick in for as little as $4 a month. You can become part of our Discord, and we have a whole new dedicated Star Trek channel to talk about other stuff that we talk about on this show. Lots of memes. Yeah, if you like MMA, if you like a lot of other things, like we have a food channel, if you like posting pictures of sandwiches that you like that, that are looking good, <laughs> subscribe. Come join, a, uh, join the community. Uh, join us next week as we go into Season 1, Episode 8, The Passenger. Until then, da -na -na -na.